Ready? Let's go. Give me a vacation. Vacation. Give me a golf course. 70 courses. Let's get a water sport. Can I get excursions? We're watching. Time for chill vibes. Beach yoga. How about a garden tour? Give me a dolphin. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. What's up? This your boy, Lil Duval. And check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. I am so satisfied. I can tell you that I'm so grateful at the end of the day that I have been able to work outside, to be surrounded by the nature. This is something no one can imagine unless you try it. Welcome back to Point of Origin, the podcast about the world of food from around the world. I'm your host, Stephen Satterfield, and today we're getting Icelandic. Earlier this summer, on what seemed like a sort of whimsical decision for all involved parties, I was invited to visit the West Fjords of Iceland to meet, among others, a group of salt makers. Now, as is my normal style, I went with lots of questions and no expectations. My hosts there, Bjorn and Gisli, who you will hear from in just a moment, wisely concluded that visiting a salt factory in a remote area of Western Iceland, while really worthwhile, might not be enough. And so while I was there, we met a group of farmers, we hung out with some chefs, and we learned about a distinctly Icelandic dairy product called skier. So today on Point of Origin, I'm going to do my best to remake this trip, and this time, I'm bringing you along. So our story begins today with a cornerstone of Icelandic cuisine that is little known outside of the country, and I'm talking about skier. Yes, skier, which is an unbelievably fun word to say, or it could be that I'm so bad at pronouncing Icelandic words that the fact I can say skier at all is particularly gratifying. Uh, <laughs> so I'm going to try. How about I try? Um, <laughs> yes, almost right. <laughs> no, no. Tell me. Thorgrimir Einar Gudjardsson. Thorgrimir Einar Gudjardsson. Yeah, Gudjardsson. I have to practice on that. And for now, I will spare you the definition of skier because it will be thoroughly covered by our first guest, but I can tell you, if you ever visit Iceland, 
it is a dairy product that you will definitely want to try or maybe you'll even end up trying it if you don't want to because it is that ubiquitous our guide on all things scare today is thormiger gubretson yeah i believe i'm catching you in the evening is that right so yes it's uh day is almost through we are in the middle of the harvesting season hay baling and driving the hay bales home wow i appreciate you taking time in the middle of harvest i know that's always the most intense part of the year you're welcome so before we we begin can you tell us where exactly uh, you're located in iceland it's uh, this is an agricultural region and uh, very much historical this is uh, the most famous historical region in iceland uh, from the early settlement started about 1200 years ago and the the saga of Laxdala which is the most uh, popular and and recognized settlement saga of the Icelandic history and uh, we are located exactly where that history happened and has it always had the agricultural legacy even during those sagas of a thousand years ago Yes, our region is uh, very well located for agriculture. We face, you know, the west side of the of the country. Uh, we are the west side of the country, so we get rain coming in from the west, and we get the sun as well coming in from the south and west. So we are moisture, very fertile area with uh, big nature, wild nature around us surrounded with wild birds both birds who we could we could take the eggs from and eat them we could fish we could hunt seals we could hunt whales there was no way that the people of this region would starve at all you had everything and even if we had a cold period which was maybe bad for harvesting for the crops like the sheep or the cows we could always feed them in the wintertime by taking them down to the sea and feed them with uh, what we know as seaweed. That's really interesting. I think probably most people don't initially think of seaweed as a feed for cattle or for for sheep, but I'm sure it imparts uh, a really amazing and kind of distinctive flavor uh, to the cheeses that you're making. It, it definitely it's very protein rich. So it's it's really really good as a substitute for their their diet. Before we start talking about your role and your work as a dairy farmer, can you tell us how you you got into making cheese and skier? Me and my wife, we are both grown up on on farm farms in this region. And uh, when we started to become couple, we decided very early that we wanted to raise our kids up in the countryside. And uh, at that time, the best way was to become a farmer then. And we had a little bit of knowledge in farming from our parents and uh, growing up on a farm. But uh, before we bought the farm, we lived in a, clo- a town close to where I live. And I was making cheeses in the dairy there. And then I decided to, to learn cheese making. So I went to Denmark for 
two years to study. And uh, just before I finished my study, the the farm Erbsteir became on sale, and uh, we decided to make an offer. And uh, the people who had it, they said yes. So we, over one night, we just became farmers. And uh, this was 1997, little, little over 20 years ago. From the very beginning of our farming, we started to have tourists coming up to our farm every summer, two or three groups who were interested in in daily life of farmers in Iceland. And we started to have samples of cheeses from the dairy in town available for those people. So when it came to the time that we needed to build a new barn for our herd as we were expanding our milk production, we decided that we would build our own little dairy uh, at the same time where I could experiment with cheese making. In September 2008, we moved into a new barn with uh, 60 cows and uh, about 100 square meters of uh, a room where I could make cheeses or other dairy products. And in the summer of 2009, approximately 10 years ago, we opened our shop with ice cream. and We only sold ice cream out of the store there. Love it. And what is the Icelandic appetite for ice cream, given presumably oftentimes it's uh, not the best weather or the most conducive weather to eating ice cream? We eat ice cream all year round. (laughs) 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 And it has nothing to do with weather. Good to know. If the weather is warm and we have sunshine, of course, people are more likely to buy an ice cream. But this is just some kind of treat. I I don't know. The flavors we on in my production are more or less something from the nature around us. Wild blueberries from the mountains, rhubarb from from the yard, and some other uh, seasonal taste. So we started with ice cream, and we got very much known immediately, as we were the one of two farmers in Iceland who were at that time producing ice cream and having it available outside our farm. So you're producing ice cream, and I'm actually curious about the tourism component because at that time, 10 years ago, have you all, did you always see tourism as an essential part of how you would sustain your, your farm? I think so. I think so because when I when I went to the agricultural college in 1987 to do my agriculture degree, I, for some reason, took a, a bicycle called uh, agrotourism, which was available then for first time. I don't know why I chose it, but probably it it interested me as. I myself, I am very much interested in when I go around to other countries, I want to explore the countryside from the people who live there. I don't want to just go on a bus and drive through the countryside and and be pointed out at this or that, you know. I want to meet the people. I want to meet the locals. Something told me that you should keep this in mind. 
20 years later, it it happened. And now we are very busy dairy producers at home. <laughs> but of course, it, this is also something that we have let develop through the years. We, we have not forced this to increase or happen. We just decide from one year to another, are we going to do something different? Are we going to make more facilities for the people when they come to visit us? And one big part of that was the skier project, you know, to take the history of skier into our business model to introduce to people, you know. That's a perfect segue into talking about skier because it sounds like you obviously were a pioneer in agro-tourism um, in Iceland, and you all had a clear vision of wanting to bring people to the West and learn more about skier. Um, so can you tell us what is skier? Skier is a way of preserving the milk, just like cheese. In the Icelandic culture, we don't have so much cheese making in the history, besides from skier making. Earlier on, all the land was owned by very few people. So most of the people who were uh, lived in the country, they had to rent a space to build their own house and home for the family. Sometimes it was done this way, that the landowner gave you one or two cows to take care of for him. So you had to feed them and milk them, take the cream off and turn, turn it into butter and deliver it home. That was your payment for the land. And then the skim milk was not worth anything. But most people know that if you have a 100 liters of milk, you will only get about four liters of cream, which is about 4%. So you have then 96% of the milk is left as skim milk, fat-free milk. But then by taking the fat out, you have very protein-rich material in your hands. The skim milk has probably about 5 or 6% protein. And people were trying to store this milk for the kids, for their home use, over a longer time. And uh, somehow through the centuries, they managed to control that if they put this, the skim milk in certain environment, it would become sour. And as it becomes sour, it also protects itself against lots of unwanted bacteria. But instead, it coagulated and the proteins came together and they fell down to the bottom of the bucket you were storing it in. So then you had lots of proteins joined together, almost like a cheese, but floated in sour liquid called skirway. Just a quick question. Did you have to add anything to cause those proteins to coagulate and fall to the bottom or does that happen naturally? It did happen naturally at that time. Today, of course, we do it by adding culture to it. And the culture we use is just a, a small amount of last parts of the skier. So we have a live skier bacteria, 
from the last cuts, and we added about one and a half percent amount into our new batch. But besides from that, you don't need to add anything particularly. And the product that you make, is that a pasteurized product? In the beginning, you take the, the milk and you warm it up to around 90 degrees. And that is to make uh, have certain influence on the proteins so that at the coagulation period, the proteins will more easily get rid of the whey and join together. But after you have added the culture to it, you do that at around 40 degrees Celsius. So we don't pasteurize it after we have made the skier itself. Got it. That makes sense. So is that the biggest difference between the skier that you're making and like the industrial producers in, in Iceland? When I was working in a dairy 20, 25 years ago, we made skier in the dairy exactly the same way as I'm doing it today, except that we used a little bit of, of cheese rennet as well. In around the year 2000, they started to pasteurize the skier after the skier production to have a longer lifetime for the product. So when you buy skier today, it is a pasteurized product, so it does not have live bacteria anymore, and it can last for up to four or five weeks. My skier, on the other hand, has a live bacteria, so it's always developing from the day I I put it in the in the pots for sale until you eat it, whenever that will be in, in one week or two weeks or three weeks. So the older the skier gets, the more sour it will be. And if you don't store it proper, if you store it, for example, out on a table, it can easily develop into something totally different than skier. As the bacteria, of course, will start multiplying as soon as you get the skier in too warm environment. Of course, when you buy skier, you should just consume it as soon as possible. So you can buy another one, right? <laughs> right away, exactly. <laughs> and if we were in Iceland and we were consuming skier, what's the most common way to do that? How do people enjoy it? It used to be this way. We we liked skier, fresh skier. In the, especially in the summer, we went to the mountains and picked berries, bilberries, blueberries, and we put it fresh out on the skier, stir it in together, and we had cream with it, uh, liquid cream, not not whipped. That's my that's my favorite to to do it that way. That's really good. And in in the past two three years, we have also done some experiments with some different varieties of of uh, things to add to our skier. Last year, 2018, we made dandelion syrup. I can tell you that skier with dandelion syrup, it's it's amazing. It's the best thing I've, I've ever tasted in skier. The dandelion syrup, is it, the flavor is very much like honey. And uh, so you can, you can sort of taste what's happening when the bees are flying between the flowers, you know. It's really good. How do you make dandelion syrup? We collect the flowers themselves. We have to do it early in the morning, as soon as the the flower opens, because later in the day, then 
the flowers will be filled with flies who are working, of course. So as, as soon as you are rice in the morning, you, you send the kids out to get the flowers. You boil them in, in water for maybe three, four hours. And then you have it sit for 24 hours. And the next morning, drain the flowers out of the liquid. And then you add some sugar to it and uh, have it boiled for about three, four hours. And then you get this thick, nice dandelion syrup. Mm. Wow. I'm going to have to try that. That sounds amazing. Wow. Okay. So dandelion syrup and skier, that's, that's the jam. Now we know. I want to ask you a question about your wife, Helka. I read, um, and actually I believe you told me this when I came to visit, that historically skier was seen, or making skier was seen as a woman's work in Iceland. I was wondering if that is still considered to be the case. Yeah, you know, everything with food used to be women's work until technology came along. <laughs> <laughs> as soon as you had some machines, you know, then... Then we started to <laughs> interfere. <laughs> <laughs> and dumbed it down for the men. <laughs> yeah. You know. And so that goes not just obviously for the cooking then, but I'm assuming, you know, milking the animals, uh, the whole kind of agricultural process all the way into the, the cooking process was all done by women? Yes. We decided to to do it this way. Helga... She takes care of the animals. She is uh, uh, in charge of the cows. I'm in charge of the production. Uh, she's in charge of the shop. I'm in charge of uh, uh, the harvesting for the animals and the machines and everything like that. So from April till uh, middle, of, middle of October, we almost don't work together. We are just working in our own corner on our own projects, you know. But then in the winter time, we we work together. In the winter, we have the most work going on about, around the animals. We need to feed them, uh, you know, more uh, accurately so that each animal has exactly the amount of food they, are, they need for their production. So, for example, dry cows, they need less food in the, in the dry period. A newborn cow needs a lot of food as much as we need to also take extra good care of the cow. So we will notice if the cow is getting a mastitis or or stomach jam or, or something like that, you know. So it's uh, in the wintertime we work together. In the summertime we have separate working seasons. I wonder too, because I'm remembering in your story that you said you went to school in Denmark and learned how to make cheese, but you grew up on a farm. So your decision to, to move back to the land, are you happy with, um, with that decision in terms of like a, a, a way of life or your lifestyle? I am. I am so satisfied. I can tell you that I'm so grateful at the end of the day. I'm so grateful at the end of the day that I have been able to work outside, to be surrounded by the nature, the birds, the plants, the rain, the sun, it doesn't matter. I'm so happy I don't need to sit by a desk inside somewhere. This is something no one can imagine unless you try it. 
and and have this flexibility you know it's a hard work of course some days some days you go through tough decisions you come across some problems with your animals you have to make decisions immediately but other days you can not even enjoy the sun even though the sun is out there because you are so stuffed with work on the fields for example now in the harvest season we don't sit out in the sun and bathe we just use the sun <laughs> to go through the day but it's so worth it i'm so pleased i i wouldn't want to be anywhere else i can tell you Ugh, makes my heart swell <laughs> well we wouldn't want you to be anywhere else because you wouldn't be making skier so um Einar, thank you so much for taking time to chat with us today. Thank you. See you later. Yeah. Bye-bye. That was Thorgamir Gubratsen. And wow, that final sentiment was so profound. It also makes me think that it's worth remembering While farming can be romantic, it is certainly not inherently so. Unless your idea of romance is long hours of strenuous labor, uncertain wages that are bound to managing unpredictable environmental outcomes, and just the overall uncertainty about whether or not you can afford to live. So yeah, that's farming. And Thorgamir's testimony compels me to give a big shout out to all the farmers who give us alternative ways to eat while caring for the land. Thank you very much. And especially to those seasonal farmers whose likeness doesn't immediately come to mind for many of us when we think about farming. I'm talking to y'all too. Thank you very much. Anyway, just feeling very heart-filled thinking of Thorgamir, who had such a clear vision for moving back to the land with his wife. And, you know, he did it. He's been very real about the fact that it hasn't been easy, but obviously he's content, and I just love to hear it. So thank you, Thorgamir, for that beautiful and pure reflection on following your heart and going back to the land. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. 
You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Our next story comes to us from the northwesternmost corner of the country, where a group of salt makers are reviving a scarcely known part of Iceland's aquacultural history. Uh, the seawater here is is, is uh, very pristine and pure. It's cold. There are currents. Uh, it's standing kind of away from from a lot of the kind of traffic of the of the world, basically. And at the top of the show, I told you about Bjorn my host in Iceland, but Bjorn, who is a fascinating guy for many reasons, especially fascinated me because one day over coffee, he just decided like, I think I'm gonna go make salt. And then he did. The idea of uh, why wasn't there made salt came to me just over a cup of coffee. And now he is, and it's really good. Bjorn is also a partner at a restaurant in the city center of Reykjavik in a sort of food hall that was a former bus station that's been renovated. It's a really cool spot with excellent food and natural wine. And as I mentioned before, Bjorn's right hand, Gisli, was a chef before he began making salt. Of course, everyone from Iceland comes out of the womb foraging and they've got all the wild herbs on lockdown. So the reason that I'm saying this is to say that these guys really know food, they really know good food, and taught me so much about Iceland's food culture of today and long ago, and now they're gonna teach you the same, the revivalist of geothermal sea salt. Thanks for your time, Gisli. Hey, yeah, no worries, man. Nice to nice to be here with you. So I have a lot of questions for you. The West Fjords is a place that once you've had an opportunity to, to visit uh, is really an unforgettable place. But can you tell us more beyond its obvious physical beauty, um, what makes it a special agricultural place or, or what it's best known for? Yeah, so the West Fjords are quite special uh, in quite a few ways. Uh, so as in for geological history of Iceland, the West Fjords and the East Fjords, uh, which are basically the most Western and most Eastern part of Iceland, are the first geological mass that formed in a volcano thousands of years ago. Uh, and still in these places, both the West Fjords and the East Fjords, there's a, a quite an abundant amount of geothermal activity and geothermal energy uh, in these places. The West Fjords especially uh, are basically just very rigid mountains and very deep fjords. So it has a quite of a 
a rich history and especially the West Kurds when it comes to food because they, as I said, uh, were quite remote. So they had various ways of preserving their food. For example, what many people think of when they hear Icelandic food, they, they hear of this famous uh, fermented shark. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is what the people from the West Kurds are, are really known for is this fermented shark, this dried fish, this kind of fermented fish, all of these kinds of of different kinds of fermentations and smoking and, and curing. A lot of it comes from the West Kurds because of the isolation, but also because the abundance of, of, of material that they had both uh, or and, and mostly like in regards to, to seafood. Yeah, and what is the word? I think it's like hakarl or something. What is? Uh, yeah, how how can? Yeah, basically just means yeah, means, just means shark in Icelandic. Yeah, and that's interesting because of course eating shark today uh, is rightfully very much frowned upon, but yeah, people yeah. seem to forget that oftentimes, especially in places like Iceland, which you know is is a really difficult place to settle, e- eating shark was really a matter of survival and sustenance. Yeah. yeah, exactly. As was the fermentation of the shark. So is that? something that's still happening in Iceland are people still eating this fermented shark no so so shark uh, he uh, like nowadays it, it isn't fished as in like conventionally it's only bycatch and this is what we call the Greenland the Greenland shark mm-hmm. and it, it is an Arctic shark and it actually it lives I think most of its life at 500 meters depth or more so it only comes up for for feeding or something and then it maybe comes up to 200 meters and that's when it happens it just becomes a bycatch of the trawlers and they might catch i don't know in a year five or ten or something uh so people don't i mean you would never have a meal with a shark you would only have a small bite it is very ammonia kind of fermented flavor and it is uh, it is basically just once a year people have it during a, a, a time of year we call Thorri, which is like used to be the time of the year when everything in your bucket of whey that you were kind of pickling or everything that you had smoked or, or, or cured was coming to its final days of being able to, uh, you, could, you could eat them without getting ill. So they always had these massive feasts and that is kind of like the end of harsh winter feast basically. Hmm. So it is just, during that time, it's in end of January, beginning of February, where you would still go to these like parties in the countryside where they would have these kinds of shark and and like this pickled like lamb pads and all these really really strange stuff that people never usually eat. <laughs> yeah, well, I may very well never have the opportunity. But speaking of preservation, uh, let's talk about salt. Can you actually just tell us, because I think many people probably, it's so ubiquitous, but we don't really think about where it comes from or how it's produced. So can you tell us how salt is actually made? Yeah, well, you're talking to the right guy then. Uh, (laughs) So salt is uh, in any and all form uh, in the world, salt basically comes from the sea. When you've been working it for uh, almost four years, it comes as a, a pretty natural to you that all the salt was once like in the sea. But when I first started, uh, it wasn't so clear to me because 
you, you would have salt in, in, in various ways. You would hear about mined salt, which is like this Himalayan salt. They say it's an ancient seabed salt, whatever. That salt is basically mined, and it is an ancient seabed, uh, but it's basically literally in the grounds of the Himalayan mountains. They dig it up like they have these salt caves in Himalaya, in India, in Pakistan, in Poland. Many of these places, they have like underground reservoirs of basically salt and other minerals that are gathered up under pressure and which can date to prehistoric times where the when the seabed was a lot higher or got into these kinds of cracks or caves. Then you would have what uh, a lot of table salt is uh, these days, uh, which you would see like this really, really cheap kind of table salt or kosher salt or all of that. Most of it is either mined in, in places where they have kind of this, the ground is just filled with you know, rocks, uh, other uh, other material, and they kind of like have these massive industrial grinders where they break down the rocks and stuff. Uh, or, or this, as I said, the, the table salt, which is in many cases just uh, formulated in a, in a chemical lab, which is basically just sodium and chloride, and then they add iodine uh, in many cases. But then you would have the most purest form of, of salt, uh, the natural form of salt, which is and sea salt basically formulates by the evaporation of seawater. And, and I mean, this is a, a natural process and you can see it happen all over. I mean, if you go down to the beach, you have some rocks there and during some maybe bad weather, some, some wind will blow the seawater up onto these rocks and you would see the rocks, they would crystallize in the sunlight. That is basically just the seawater evaporating and the salt kind of uh, being left on the rock. So, so this is all the basis of the idea where Saltberg basically was born from. So, so Saltberg was born from the idea is Iceland is uh, up in the middle of the North Atlantic. Uh, the seawater here is, is, is uh, very pristine and pure. It's cold, there are currents, uh, it's standing kind of away from, from a lot of the kind of traffic of the, of the world basically. Uh, the idea was, okay, maybe uh, we can find a spot there which we can do some salt production. So uh, then the idea came about of using geothermal energy. So Geesley has given us a great foundation about what salt is and isn't, but the thing that I'm still struggling with is not in Geesley's lifetime or his parents' lifetime or even his grandparents' grandparents' lifetime has anyone been making salt in Iceland. So now that we have a little bit of context about the origins of salt, let's have a look at the origins of salt verk. As it turns out, like many of life's greatest ideas, it came in a vision, a vision induced by coffee. Here's Bjorn Janssen, the Saltwerk founder, talking about this transformational moment. The idea of uh, why wasn't there made salt uh, came to me just over a cup of coffee uh, as a discussion, because uh, we have the, uh, and, and I think it was out of a discussion of how to utilize the uh, sustainable resources of of, uh, of Iceland in food production. And, uh, and then I... Uh, found by research online that there had been a salt production earlier, over 200, 200 years ago, uh, at this uh, location in the Westfjords, 
uh, and uh, I basically went there to see if there was still opportunity to to do that then. And then uh, arriving at the place, the hot water was just coming from the ground, the abundance of water at a boiling temperature naturally coming from the ground and, and no one uh, utilizing that. And as it was far away, it wasn't, wasn't utilized by, by, by any man uh, to, uh, to, to any extent. And thus that led uh, us to go and try make soft in this place. That's pretty wild, man. I got to tell you, I mean, I've had a lot of crazy ideas over coffee and very few of them have been materialized. So <laughs> kudos to you. Um, but I mean, really though, like, so you're, you're sitting there, you're, you're drinking coffee and you start thinking about salt and you're like, I want to make salt or why don't we have salt here? You go online, mm -hmm. you do some research you find out actually there did used to be salt here, but it hasn't happened in 200 years. And you decide I'm going to actually now bring back this tradition. Is that pretty much? Absolutely. Absolutely. That, that's how it, uh, it turns out. And uh, initially I just had, uh, I mean, I just used my own uh, spare uh, money to just test making salt. So I, uh, there wasn't, at that point, there were, were no plans of uh, anything more than just trying out if it would work. It was just basically curiosity, and I was curious to, you know, is this possible? And it was an, it was an interesting for me to, do, you know, go and do something where, you know, I could see the end product because today so often in the world that we live in, we're so alienated, you know, people are so alienated away from, well, uh, you know, how things are really made. And you, so many people can have a job that, uh, they don't really uh, at any point see what is being done or made. So it was curiosity and uh, that led me to try, you know, if I could make a product myself, uh, design uh, equipment and uh, evaporate seawater and see the salt uh, coming alive. That, that was sort of initially what caught my, caught my interest. And uh, in the very beginning, the plans were just to try and see if it would work out. And so you're watching this evaporation, this crystallization happen on a pretty small scale. And obviously mm -hmm. you're really engaged in this. And at some point when you see this transformation happening, is there something within you that says, this is absolutely what I want to pursue? Or was it a slower progression to full on salt making company? I, I think absolutely uh, it was a very important point when uh, when the crystallization started to form on the surface of the water. And I think maybe equally important milestone was the first salt that it took to uh, have someone else try. I mean, take the product. So I took took the first 250 grams or you know eight ounces of salt that we got out of this first pan. You know, drove it throw back uh, to Reiki with it and uh, uh, wanted to have someone try the product. And, you know, it was for me not only to, to make salt, but I wanted to make a product that would be something that chefs would uh, like. Uh, and uh, so I took it to a restaurant in Reykjavik. And, uh, and when uh, I saw the reaction of, of the first chefs at Dill uh, restaurants on the, the salt, that was equally equally important 
in uh, you know guiding me towards that this, this was something that I wanted to pursue. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. So Bjorn goes to the place where it was last documented, in the West Fjords, which you've been hearing all about. And when he arrives, what does he find? Hot water is spewing from the earth. And he thinks, I think I found something here. So he spends a week in the wilderness making salt in a pan. And after one week, he sees the first signs of salt crystallizing. And that's pretty much it. Just like that, Bjorn is in the business of making salt. Here's Geesley picking up the story. Then we got approached actually by historians in Iceland saying, hey, there was actually a salt factory in this exact spot like 400 years ago. Wow. And we were, we kind of didn't believe that, but then uh, they, we, we started investigating the story. And so, so Iceland used to be a part of the Danish kingdom. And the Danish king, he actually, uh, he operated a salt factory there, and then they used to just uh, have these salt pans made out of lead, and uh, they put them just like straight on top of the geysers. So in a lot of areas in Iceland, you would have these kind of, uh, we call them hot zones, mm-hmm. basically. So in these hot zones, you have this activity in 200 meters depth or 500 meters depth, uh, you would have the ground is basically still hot due to volcanic activity. Uh, and then you would have fresh groundwater which seeps down through, it heats up, and it creates an immense pressure for the water because it actually, like, under this pressure, it can go over boiling point. Wow. And that's why it kind of surges upwards because the steam needs to 
break loose, basically. We found this area, which is in uh, the West Fjords, where the hole where the hot water is seeping from is literally 300 meters away from the seawater. So this proximity of the energy source and the raw material, which is the Arctic Ocean, was there. So all we needed to do is find a way of how could we harness this energy and use it to kind of enhance this natural process of, of sea salt formulation. Because, I mean, there, there are many producers that either use sunlight, some of them use fossil fuels, uh, for example, gas or coals, to basically boil down the seawater to be able to make the sea salt. But that isn't very friendly to our atmosphere, to use uh, fossil fuels for boiling crazy amounts of seawater. So having this uh, renewable energy source, it is basically given to us by Mother Nature. So what we basically did, we intercepted this leakage to the seawater. So, so I mean, the, the whole process is, is, is basically that we, we have a big tank, which is like a massive swimming pool. Uh, and, uh, and in that we have five sections. So in these sections, we try to kind of mitigate the salinity after stages. So the last uh, compartment has the highest salinity. That's a brine that is almost 20%. And in these compartments, we basically have these big radiators which we lead through the hot water. So we are not adding anything in the process. The only thing we are doing is we are pumping seawater into this big tank and we are leading the hot water through in radiators to start kind of slowly distilling or boiling down the, the seawater and making a, a strong brine. So we then pump the, pump the brine from that tank into what we call a salt pan, which is basically just like a massive sauce pot. So when it comes to the point where, where you have a brine which is 28% saline, after you have evaporated almost 90% of all the water in the solution, then the salt crystals just slowly start accumulating because like they they can't uh, they can't be dissolved anymore. Amazing. And the salt flakes you all um, harvest, and that's what ends up you know being packaged as as sea salt. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and there the salt actually accumulates. And when it accumulates, uh, we hand harvest it with these big kind of scrape thingies. Uh, almost like a, a shovel with a long stick and it just basically it comes in these big flake shaped sizes and and we we are not doing anything else than basically we are enhancing this natural process of of of, of evaporation of, of, of seawater uh, we harvest it we put it into draining bins and then we use the residual energy which we use for like the radiators and the pans we use that also in the drying room. So the retour heat of all of that, it goes into the walls of the drying room. So it makes kind of a, uh, a space which is like very dry and, and very warm. And in there we dry the salt flakes and eight hours later, we, we usually dry them for about eight hours. Uh, we then just take them from the drying racks and package them uh, from there. So basically straight on top of the energy, like the heat source, the water that was coming up. And the thing is, like Iceland, like the backbone of Icelandic economy has always, or, or almost always, been uh, exporting fish. 
and especially bacalao, like salted cod, to to Portugal and Spain and 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 down to kind of South America and these countries. And during that time, uh, they were exporting so much uh, bacalao or salted cod that it became quite expensive to be always shipping salt to Iceland to preserve the fish, to then ship the fish back. So they came up with this brilliant idea to produce the salt in Iceland using the geothermal energy and for to able to export it. But because they were using pans that were made out of lead, all of the salt was blue. So all of the mm. fish was blue when it arrived mm. Portugal and Spain. <laughs> That's so really funny. Our salt isn't blue. <laughs> no. Um, I wonder if they were still able to uh, to sell the fish. That must have been pretty concerning to see all that blue fish. So that the bacalao is a good example. Do you know what the what the other traditions of using salt as a preservative in cooking in, in Iceland were? Or if so, what period uh, in history that, that came into fashion? The thing about Iceland is like – during, throughout the ages, the the winter has always been quite uh, quite a harsh time, uh, and also nothing kind of grows properly in Iceland except for almost two or three months a year. So a lot of of Icelandic uh, food traditions uh, are all about preserving. Should because I assume that are... that doesn't impart any uh, flavors or aromas, or is that not a consideration? No, right no. Then? Uh, no, no, no. It actually packs a, a, a very distinctive flavor, but not in a bad way. Mm. <laughs> it is kind of a smoky flavor, which is uh, a lot different from this, like applewood smoke, or, or like this smoky flavors that you're that you are like kind of more used to. It becomes more like a like the smell when you burn a wax log. Kind of, it, it is kind of a certain kind of flavor that gets to it, and it's actually really quite nice. But they used to do this due to there aren't abundant of trees in Iceland. So they would use that uh, for smoking uh, both fish and meat. And then, of course, uh, curing. So almost all of the fish was kind of either salted uh, or cured when it was caught. And that, uh, that basically kind of was the biggest use of salt in Iceland. Uh, it was for, for curing uh, fish. So I'm imagining these stark winters of fermented shark and skier and basically nothing else, but I'm also remembering that on more than one occasion, people have said to me, you know, there are more sheep in Iceland than people. And I have to admit, I've always been a little confused by that. Fish as the cornerstone of a diet makes perfect sense, but lamb? How the hell did all that livestock end up in Iceland in the first place? Here's Geesley to explain. Lamb has been in Iceland since settlement, so I think some of it must have been wild, but some of it must have just been brought here during settlement, so so since around 874. Hmm. So the Nords maybe are the ones who brought lamb, but also yeah, when they arrived, the lamb were already running wild or some yeah, version yeah. of it. Yeah. I, I mean, we, in Iceland, there are only like four free-roaming animals, and that is like a wild mouse, uh, a mink, a fox, and a reindeer. But reindeers didn't come here until 1700s. 
That's super interesting. Um, so let's, I want to talk about then how all of this historical context plays into what's happening in the food culture of Iceland today, because there are increasingly more and more people from all over the world visiting Iceland. Do you think that the food culture that is emerging now that I, I got to see a little bit of when I was there, um, do you have any sense of if that's driving tourism and also how the chefs are kind of responding or adapting to their historical roots uh, in Iceland and also kind of a more globalized um, food culture? The, the, the new Nordic food scene, which is brought to the world uh, by, by many people uh, in, in Scandinavia, but most notably probably Renner and Sapi and the team at Noma, it kind of uh, opened the eyes of, of many Icelandic chefs to, to be proud of what is surrounding us. So, I mean, I, I can say I started working in the restaurant industry about like 10 or 11 years ago. And then people wouldn't be using seaweed that is growing around. They would be more proud to use kind of black truffles from Italy or, or, or these kind of like Italian parmesanos or this like prosciutto cut ham and all of that. Because nobody kind of was super proud of Icelandic food traditions. Uh, because when they would look back and people would ask like, okay, what is Icelandic food? It would always just come down to the fact that I was saying before, like these since sheep heads or, or fermented shark or this stuff. But this stuff was only a, a small part of, of Icelanders' diets. Uh, I mean, all of the fresh fish that is around here, there are a lot of different kind of wild herbs that grow here. For example, Angelica and Arctic thyme, which are just beautiful kind of herbs and spices that, that grow here during summertime and fall. That Icelanders kind of became quite ignorant of with the with the new kind of wave of of, of food, mm -hmm. and and dur during these years from maybe 1970s to 2000s, a big like global trend in food was maybe classical French and Italian food. But then with this new generation of chefs that are coming up, and two of which uh, which are probably the most prominent chefs uh, in Iceland. Uh, one of them, Gunni Kalli, who started the restaurant called Bill, which is uh, Iceland's first uh, Michelin-recognized restaurant. And then another, which is a good friend of mine, called Gisle Matthias or Gisle Matt. Those two uh, have done a lot in kind of uh, awakening and preserving Icelandic methods and Icelandic food, basically, as in going back into the countryside and foraging and using these all preservative methods, but like giving them a new face. Basically what the new Nordic movement did. For example, what Gisli Mack is doing, he has a restaurant in an island on the south coast of Iceland, which is uh, inhabited by 4,000 people. And it is only open during summertime and they only use local fresh seasonal ingredients. They have fish off the pier. They are, they are picking the herbs on the islands. They are getting the seabird eggs that are there. And I mean, I think there has been a lot of reawakening with what is Icelandic food. And when you come to think of it, uh, when Gisli had this restaurant, he was researching a lot like, okay, he wanted to delve into like what, what is truly Icelandic food and what are Icelandic habits. And he came to see that 
one one quite funny story that today there are quite a lot of geothermal greenhouses in Iceland, which basically means that the greenhouses uh, warmed up by geothermal heat. So in there they are able to grow like peppers and tomatoes and cucumbers and, and these kind of basic household items, as in for vegetables, uh, and they do it indoors. So many are like saying that, yeah, tomatoes are, are really Icelandic because we grow them in Iceland in these geothermal greenhouses. But the tomatoes were only started to grow here in, in 1970s, probably around, in these geothermal greenhouses when we had the technology to grow inside. But since the year 1000, we have been importing ginger and black pepper during, since during the Viking age. So when you come to think of it in a historical sense, which ingredient is more Icelandic tomatoes that have been growing here for 40 years or ginger that has been the food culture for 1,000 years? Wow, so, true. And no one would think of that, uh, of ginger in Iceland, including it sounds like chefs no, for many years. Yeah, yeah, no, 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 like definitely not. They would say, no, ginger is so far away from being Icelandic. But then, then again, I mean, wh- which food is which food is from which country? I mean, people say potatoes are Irish, but they come from Peru. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, no, it's a really good point. Well, I uh, I appreciate you taking so much time today to school us on salt, geothermal energy, fermented sharks, <laughs> and uh, the emergent culinary scene. Cheers, mate. Okay, cheers. I hope you all enjoyed that. Next up, we have a little bonus, not in Iceland, but we're going to stay on the same theme. We're joined by Abby Richard, friend of Whetstone, founder of Finca Cold Brew, which is a really cool company that imports single origin cold brew. But that's not why we're here today. We're here to continue our salty explorations with Abby's story from Whetstone Volume 3 about an entirely different kind of salt harvest. But before we bring on Abby to do that, this seems like a good time to say that while we're here talking salt, if you'd like to know more about salt, our iHeartRadio food cohorts did a great episode on all things salt. If you want to go all the way in on what it is and what it isn't, hop on over to Savor Podcast, scroll back to April 6, 2018, and go to town. But for now, Abby Richard on Salt Mines of Peru's Sacred Valley. Thank you so much for joining us today, Abby. Thank you. Happy to be here. Before we get into your story and its contents, can you tell us, well, first of all, what and where is the Sacred Valley and uh, what compelled you to travel there? So the Sacred Valley is located in Peru. Um, it's maybe about two hours outside of Cusco. Um, it's just, it's an incredible mountainous area, um, really high elevation. Um, you're going to be anywhere from like 9,000 to 14,000 feet when you're around there. I was in the Sacred Valley actually to play soccer. There was a municipal team in a town called Urubamba, which is actually really close to where the salt mines were. So I was working with them, um, with a group of people, and we were training with them and working with some kids in the community. So that's actually what brought me to Peru. 
Perfect. And had you had any knowledge or experience in seeing salt mines up close and personal before then? No, I I never actually had been to a salt mine. I have this weird obsession with salt. <laughs> so I've always been very fascinated with it, researching different areas about how salt is made and harvested. But I've never, that was my first chance to actually be at a site. So that was really exciting for me. And the village is called Maras, is that right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And um, can you describe uh, what the vibe of, of the village is? Yeah, so it's a small community just outside of where the salt mines are located. So this is a high altitude salt mine. It sits at about 11,000 feet um, and pretty arid as well. So you kind of have, you're in like high altitude desert. And the community is it's not huge. It's pretty small, at least for the salt mines. There's about 300 families that work together to mine and maintain the salt ponds. So if we were to come visit the salt ponds, like what would we be going to visit? Yeah, so tourists can come see the salt ponds. So there are a couple of ways to get there. You can actually hike up to it from Urubamba or you can drive around coming up through one of the mountain passes and come down. They'll charge an entrance fee, which helps to support the community. There's also a little bit of commerce where you can actually buy the salt directly from them. There's quite a few shops. Um, and really, it's just like these salt crusted channels that you can walk on top of and you can get like right in the action and see what's going on. So it's a pretty unique experience in that way in which it's one of Peru's um, ancient wonders that's still being worked and is alive today and is actually still benefiting the community, you know, rather than some of like the more famed wonders like Machu Picchu or something where it's strictly tourism. And so who currently owns and manages these salt ponds? So the community of Maras is responsible for farming it. It's actually farmed as a cooperative. There is a governing agent that oversees the ponds. So Basically, the ponds need to be maintained in order for them to survive. So if a plot is not being maintained, then that family may be bumped and someone else could be put in. But it's voluntary. If anyone in the community wants to farm these plots, they have full right to. Um, and basically, they just find an empty plot that's not being farmed and they can take over that. Um, also, if you're married into the community, then you have a right to start farming as well, but it is only open to people of the Mars community. I mean, there's like thousands of these salt ponds yeah. on the mountain. It's really spectacular. Um, yeah. So where where is all this salt end up? We're up, like I said, at about 11,000 feet. And these salt ponds, they start at the top and they cascade down the mountain. Not all of those ponds are being farmed. But from there, when the salt is harvested, it's actually then taken to a plant and it's processed and it's iodized, and then it's bagged up and brought back for sale. So the majority of it is actually sold at uh, Maras, where they have, you know, the string of commerce, like lots of booths, and you can, you can buy bags of it, you can buy foods that are salted with the salt. And when you were there, did you see, like, was there action where people actively harvesting the salt, or are people there to just kind of like check out the whole scene? So basically, you have these aqueducts that run through these channels, and each plot has its own um, water entry notch, which that 
salt worker can control. So they can control their own flow of the brine into the pool. So you're going to see different plots at different stages of evaporation. So we were there in their dry season and the ponds evaporate very quickly. So you're going to see more use of the opening of the water entry notches so that they can refill the brine and keep the system going. So versus in the rainy season, it, it takes a little longer to evaporate because there is more rain. So you don't see them unplugging those as much. But we kind of, I got a look into kind of the whole process of seeing people in more water-filled ponds and then people really digging out the crust to bring back to the top and get their salt processed. So did you have anything there that you encountered that really stuck with you about the relationship to this particular piece of land? Yeah, I think what's really interesting, and I, I briefly mentioned this, is just that these salt ponds, in order for them to survive just as they are, they need to be maintained and they need to be farmed. And so I, I just kind of drew the relationship of like anything, you know, like Machu Picchu or another wonder that that needs constant maintenance to to keep it up and preserve it. And just like that, these salt farms do as well. But I think what's interesting about this is that it actually provides uh, this community with a product and a line of commerce. Mm-hmm. So it's something where you have this ancient system, you know, this intricate system that was developed pre-Incan and it's still maintained today and it's still used as a way to fuel and fund this community. So it's just like this nice symbiotic relationship where you have this, I don't know, this ancient wonder that's still alive mm-hmm. and used today. And I think that's, it's a lot of work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's really hard. They're in really hard conditions. And so for people to commit to that and um, sort of like commit to those ancient roots, as well as, you know, a way to kind of fuel their own lives. I think it's just, it's really beautiful and really unique in terms of, you know, the different wonders that you see around Peru. Indeed, a very rare story mm-hmm. of um, agricultural tourism gone right, mm. which we're so yeah. happy to hear. Okay, well, thank you so much, Abby. That is Abby Richard on the salt mines of Peru's Sacred Valley in Maras. Thank you so much, Stephen. All right, we'll talk to you soon. That was Abby Richard, and this has been Point of Origin Podcast, Episode 2. Thanks for hanging out with us. You know, reflecting on these conversations from today, I'm struck by many things, but namely this notion of preservation, which we discussed in our inaugural episode. But what I'm realizing about preservation is that it's not merely a theme for a particular episode. Preservation is really the essence of our work. And that is also true for our global community of scholars, activists, chefs, artists, winemakers, distillers, and so many others. Our community members aren't just our teachers, they are also our keepers. And I think that this distinction is an important one. The act of sharing these stories isn't just about conveying information. In a preservation framework, these stories keep traditions alive, keep culture alive, and keep us as human beings alive. And there's no metaphor in that. I mean that quite literally, like without the preservation of food, without salt and fermentation, we would not be here to share these stories. And in sharing these stories of preservation, 
we remember that we can't really know who we are without knowing who we were. Thanks to Abby and our friends in Iceland, Gisli Grimson, Bjorn Jansson of Saltberg, and to Thorgamir Gubratsen of Erpstedir Skier. Point of Origin is a podcast from iHeartMedia and Whetstone Magazine, executive produced by Christopher Hasiotis and hosted by me, Stephen Satterfield. Special thanks to Kat Hong for editing, supervising producer Gabrielle Collins, and a very special thanks to my business partner, Whetstone co-founder Melissa Shi. For more on Point of Origin, visit us online at whetstonemagazine.com backslash pointoforigin or on Instagram at Whetstone Magazine, where we will always have all the details on all things Point of Origin. Next time on Point of Origin, from a flower. You know, all fruit comes from flowers, but not all flowers become fruit. Once you start to see the two as the same, the world of both grow more interesting. Dates, honey, and saffron. We're getting sweet and spicy next time on Point of Origin. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.